This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together for hell, hell, hell. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. Cool. My name is Justin Schleyer. Um, I think I should like give a little preface about like my background, my life, so that you understand why my views are the way that they are, because they're probably a lot different than other people's views. When I was six months old, I got abandoned on a doorstep, like just like you see in the movies, like left there. <laughs> And um, a black family took me in and gave me, you know, gave me life, you know, created me to who I was. I lived the first 13 years of my life in the Robert Taylor Projects and didn't see a white person until I was like 16 years old. And so my views were really twisted and tainted. I got to see a, a part of life that a lot of people don't get to see. And, you know, coming from that environment, there was a lot of negativity. Obviously, hip-hop was all around me. That's all the music that was played in that in that environment. And negativity was everywhere. So so songs like like the one that I chose, Keep Your Head Up, like it really carried us through. It it, it, it got rid of the negativity. And I, and I feel like today, it really, it really molded who I am today. Because if you, if you listen to the lyrics in that song about how to treat women, that you don't disrespect women, you don't rape women, you don't put your hands on women, I feel like that created the values that I carry with me today. Hearing somebody that I looked up to and respected, an artist, say that, that this isn't how you treat women, kept me from treating women that way. You know, like, like I saw people, women getting abused all around me, prostitution, rape, everything. And that song kind of taught me, that, you know, don't do it, don't follow that route go a different route. How hip-hop has such a negative view to it, and people blame the songs for causing a lot of violence and things like that. There are songs that could mold people in the right direction, in a, in a good way. Yo, where the fuck is that little boy at? Stanley, bring your ass here, goddammit. Punk-ass nigga. But anyway, man, yo, bone, man. When I get 14, man, I want to buy me a ragtop tray and some gold man, fuck that shit, man. You need to take your ass to school, get your motherfucking job man, and fuck shit. fuck that, man. Fuck you, man. Look here. When I get 14, man, I want to buy me a ragtop tray on some gold dainas with a three-wheel motion, ten-wheel put-out, three-finger ring, fat-ass link, and a big booty bitch to go with it. The other song, actually, that shows us by Ice Cube on the Death Certificate album has a completely opposite connotation. That one actually moved me more towards negative thinking and kind of got me on a bad path. You know, I, I, I got involved in a lot of bad things growing up. Didn't follow the song. The song didn't drive me through those bad things, but it was definitely present and, and put thoughts into my mind and, and maybe made, desensitize me to some of the things that I was seeing and experiencing just because I had heard about it. Break them off some. <laughs> it's really a shame. Young brothers and sisters today have a lack of understanding yeah. of what it really means to be black. Could you tell me who unleashed our animal instinct? And the white man sitting there tickle pink no Laughing at us on the avenue Busting cops at each other after having proof So, you know, like I said, where I grew up at, it was really bad And I got shot for the first time when I was 13 years old Unfortunately, from 13 to 17, I was shot seven more times On if it's individual occasions, actually six occasions One time it was two bullets at once And that song kind of, like I said, it didn't, it didn't push me in that direction But it made me feel like that's how I had to be 
that's the environment that I was in. The things they were talking about on that album were going on around me every day. So I thought that that was just, that was life. That's how life existed. Would I have gone that route without hearing that song? Probably. You know, so I, I wouldn't blame that song for, for driving me in the direction that I went as much as I would the environment that I was we in. enjoy ourselves. Too busy, jealous at each other's wealth right, becoming us right. just in me. But the black community is full of envy. Oh, shit. Too much backstabbing. While I look out the window, I see all the Japs grabbing. Every vacant lot in my neighborhood. Yeah. Build a store and sell their goods. So like like in the beginning when he's talking about like like people moving into the neighborhood and taking away everything that belongs to the neighborhood it's like that's that was so true in, the, in that environment that I grew up in so like the song really rang home and because that part was true then everything after it was true it just it just became like confirmed like the projects for example no grass right do you know why there's no grass there the government decided during it was during um I think it was Nam they decided that it was cheaper to put pave it over with concrete than to hire a grass cutting company to keep cutting things. And then what that does then is it just it, it takes away from from community what it looks like, and so now you're miserable where you're at, and what are you gonna do but but be miserable? And miserable thoughts make miserable actions follow. Like I said, that song it really it really speaks true to a lot of things that were going on around me at the time. But I noticed that like there's a lot of conflict in that song. You know, on on one hand he's talking about all the bad things and and the way we can make it right, but then he's talking about destruction and everything else in the song as well. I had I had I had a tape it had it had probably six songs on it maybe it had us it had steady mob and it had death certificate that actually was my first introduction to hip hop actually that was the first tape I had ever heard and it was that song <laughs> somebody at school gave me the tape and I took it home and then that was just like my you know in, intro to it they took me in because at that time, that was in like 78 or whatever, there was a lot of, of kids in institutions and stuff that were getting molested and raped and all this stuff going on. And she feared that that, that might happen to me if I went to a place like that. And she knew that wouldn't happen in her home. So I, I actually was never legally adopted because they knew that if they went to DCFS and said, hey, we found this kid in this carriage, like we'd like to adopt him, they're going to be like, oh, hell no. You're black. He's white. You're poor. You can't raise your own kids. He's not going to fit in your neighborhood. He's going to have a bad life because of you guys were taking him and put him in foster care. So to keep me from going to, to uh, institution, they just took me in. I was left actually with my baby book, with my birth certificate, all that stuff. And when I went to school, like in kindergarten, they took the baby book in and said that, that my mother was a truck, truck driver across country and they were my babysitters, or my caregivers. And she asked them to come register me for school. Here's all my documents. And Chicago's public schools didn't ask a question. <laughs> they didn't, you'd think they'd say, wait a minute, this kid's white. We've never seen a white kid here. <laughs> They didn't ask nothing and just hustled me through the door and nobody nobody questioned it. Yes, I coming up as a must, but before we can come up, take a look at us. Break them off some. I, I actually, like I said, I didn't see another Caucasian person until I was like 16, 15, something like that. And I didn't know I was abandoned until I was like 17 years old. And my mother and father lied to me and told me that I was their child, natural child. And that in the emergency room, I was given a or mom was given a medication, and it, it changed my skin, because I didn't know what what Caucasians were. We didn't have a TV. When I went to school, it was only black people. When I went to this corner store, it was only black people. The cab drivers were only black. There were no white people. So I was just like there was a mask over my head like my whole life until I like I said hit hit seventeen, and she did it to make me not self destruct, like feeling like I was abandoned and I was worthless. So I actually believed, I had the perception that I was a black male until I was like 17 years old. 
everything that I heard in the song wasn't me thinking this is how black people were. It was thinking that's how people are. So, so I, I, you know, I took it all in personally and said, you know, we're worthless as, as people. You know, look where we live at. Look how miserable it is around here. Why, why even try to do anything with your life? If you, if you get something good, somebody's going to take it from you. You know, you, you can't succeed. So, like I said, it just kind of confirmed a lot of those thoughts that I had. Break them off some. Yeah, I mean, it, it sucked. It, it, it was misery. It was 24 hours a day, stinking. I mean, it just, it just stunk. The, the garbage chutes were in the middle of the building, so the entire middle of the building was good trash. So in the summer, it just, it just when it get 90 degrees outside, it just, it just reeked of garbage all the time. All the hall- hallways were outdoors. They were caged in by fence so that people couldn't get thrown off. And, you know, there was graffiti everywhere, every hallway. The elevators, you didn't get on because if you got on, you might not get off. People would, would stand in there to rob people all day long. Stairways were scary, dark, you know, lights never got changed. Drug dealers used to break out the lights, the hallway lights on the outside of the building because the city wouldn't come in to change them. And if they were in the darkness, they couldn't be seen selling drugs. There was just, you know, there was there was piss on the floor all the time. People just drunk walking around. Everybody, it seemed like everybody was intoxicated all the time there. It, it wasn't a couple of people. It was it was pretty much everybody. And I think it was because everybody was so miserable. You know, home is supposed to be a place where you like, you want to go to. Like when you're, you know, you want to relax. You want to get away from everything. You just go in and shut your door. And you didn't want to go home ever. You know, we were poor. So it was like, that's all we knew was that environment. And, and that's why we listened to music and hip-hop so much was because we didn't go anywhere. We didn't have anything to do. Music was free. And so, and like I said, a lot of the positive songs from hip-hop like carried us through and made us not be depressed, not be sad. You know, we didn't leave, I didn't leave my, my block, you know, five block radius till I was like 13. You could, you could see, it was, it was crazy. You could see um, like downtown from State Street where I was at. And it was kind of like the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz. It's like, it was like there, but like you could never, you couldn't get there, you couldn't reach it. It was like close enough to touch, but you never went there because you didn't have a reason to go there. We'll always sing the blues, because all we care about is hairstyles and tennis shoes. And if you step on mine, you push the button, because I'll beat you down like it ain't nothing. Just like a beast. You know, I, <laughs> I actually ran into some white people. And that's, that's when I was like, oh my God. And I went up to them and, and I obviously had a different accent than they did. And I went up to him and I said, oh, my God, you guys got the same problem I got. And they looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, we ain't got no problems. What are you talking about? And I, I called home, like, instantly. <laughs> I went to a pay phone. And I, I called home and I'm like, Mom, I found some people that had the same problem that I had. And she was like, oh, Lord. She's like, come on, we got to talk. <laughs> and so she explained it all to me. And then, like, things started to make sense why I never saw anybody that looked like me before. And that outside of where we lived, there was a whole other world of, of white people and other people. For a minute, I started to realize, okay, this song isn't about me anymore because I'm not black, obviously. But I think it made me like the person I am today of, of not being racist because I could see it from both sides and I could understand and relate to it. I saw that people are people regardless of, of who they are, where they come from. People struggle in all walks of life. Even think about like 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 the projects like Cabrini Green. There were there were corners when Cabrini was standing and, and, and in full full swing that on, on one corner you had people begging for food. They didn't, have, they didn't have anything to eat. And across the street, people were paying $200 a plate for steak. And, you know, the, the, the fact that it can be that close and because of things like racism, that the people never crossed onto the other side of the world. I actually, sometimes if I'm in a, in a restaurant like in Lincoln Park or something, I feel out of place. And I'm, I, I look like everybody there. Nobody there looks at me any different than anybody in the restaurant. But I actually feel kind of like, wow, there's a lot of white people here. <laughs> it feels awkward to me. I don't know, it, it made me realize that there are a lot of people out there. Like I, I, like I said, I, I couldn't be hatred or, or, or racist or anything like that, but... I realized that there are people out there that are. And you know what I mean? It put me on a quest to try to understand. Like a beast, but I'm the first nigga to holler out. Peace, black I man. I need my wife and children to a pump. When I get drunk, 
At, at 13 after I got shot that first time, I decided, you know what, maybe I need to be in a gang too because I don't want to get shot anymore. When I was recruited, I was, I was told that I'd never have to hurt anybody. I'd never have to touch drugs. I'd never have to go to jail. I'd never have to do anything wrong. They only needed me to say we've got 10,000 members instead of 9,999 9, members. Strength in numbers. The first time, you know, the first time that I, I committed a crime, it was, you know, it was hard to do. I was scared to death. And, you know, I, I knew right from wrong. And after I committed it, though, and then I was paid for doing it, I started to like doing it. I didn't have to skip a meal. I could, I could go and buy McDonald's or something. And so then it became a me asking for work instead of me being told to do things. At 16, I was making 5000 a week. You know, I started out selling weed, and that was my big thing, but there wasn't any money in it. And when I found out what I could make with rocks, it was, it was over with. I left the weed alone and just did that. I had business hours. It's like 9 to midnight shops open. Midnight comes, I'm gone. Don't be there at 8.30. Don't draw attention to where we're at. 9 to midnight, that's it. And it was just a constant stream of people. It just it was just nonstop. I, you know, that five grand every week I blew in like three days because I knew the next day it was coming again. It never ceased. It only got more and more quantity. And all y'all dope dealers, you as bad as the police, cause you kill us. You got bitch when you started slanging dope, but you ain't built us a supermarket so we can spend our money with the blacks. Too busy buying gold and Cadillacs. That's what you're doing with the money that you're raising, exploiting us like the Caucasians did. Yeah. For 400 right. years, I got 400 tears for 400 peers. Yeah. Died last year from gang-related crimes. That's why I got gang-related crimes. First time I got shot, I was 13. And I was on uh, 43rd and, I think it was 43rd and State. A, a buddy of mine, I was walking with him, and, and he was a gang member. I wasn't at the time. And we were walking together and a rival gang member came up and put a gun to his head and said, you know, I'm going to kill you, whatever, and cocked the hammer and, and started to squeeze back. And at the last minute, I just jumped and, and hit his hand down. And I, I actually, I fell down. I thought I was going to die. You know, I really thought I was going to die. And I went to the hospital. And then when I healed up, when my ankle healed up and I didn't need a cane anymore, my ego in my head just like swelled up like this. And I, I said, you know what? I'm invincible. Like, I'm, I, I guess they can't kill me. Next time I shot was in my back, quarter inch from my spine with a nine millimeter. I was running away from a fight that we had and, and I got shot in the back. And they left a bullet in for two weeks because they couldn't figure out how to get the bullet out without paralyzing me. They ended up making a decision to the right of the wound and went in and pulled it out sideways so they didn't hit my spine. And same thing, when I, when I got out of the hospital two months later, it's like I was healed up and I said, I'm invincible, even more invincible now. And so I just kept going out there for it because I didn't think that I could be killed. I shot three times on my left side with the 38, puncturing my left lung. Last time I was shot was on the back of my head. A shotgun hit me in the back of the head right here. I had 68 pellets across my back and, and through my head. And I was in a coma for two months. I woke up from that coma and the doctor came in and said, you know, we had to restart your heart twice. You died twice. Shouldn't be here. Unfortunately, I got some good news and bad news. What's the, you know, what's the good news? He said, you're alive. He said, you shouldn't be. And I said, okay, well, then what's the bad news? It can't be that bad then. He said, you'll never again be able to smell or taste. So current to date, I have 0% smell and I have about 5% taste. And that's something that I kind of, it's a constant reminder of, of the bad choices that I made and stuff like that. That was, that was a, the worst time. And, and, and when I came out of that coma, I said, this is it. I'm not invincible. Got to do something different. And that's when I signed up for the Navy. Bet my money on the dice or the horses jobless. So I'm a hope for the armed forces. Go to church, but they tease us with a picture of a they used to call me Negro. After all this time, I'm still busting up the ship No respect to Nick Noah, and I'm having more babies than I really can. I was I was 17, and I, I did a program called Delayed Enlistment, 
and you get your GED, and then as soon as you get your GED and you turn 18, then you leave the next day. That was my like my only way out of what I was doing. I, I, I didn't see any end in sight. Like I was poor, I couldn't go to college, I didn't know about loans and things like that. I knew the Navy couldn't discriminate against me and they'd just take me and put me in there. I was signed up for a four-year commitment. When you're in a coma for more than 24 hours, the UCMJ considers that a serious head injury and you can enlist for, I think it's five years you have to wait to make sure you're not gonna have any residual effects. So I, I went to sign up at 17. I went to sign up and, and when my medical records came back, he said, you know, sorry kid, you gotta come see us in five years. And I, I immediately started crying and I said, I said, I'm not gonna be alive, I need you to help me. And my recruiter said, I'll tell you what kid, come back and see me tomorrow. And so I came back the next day at like five o'clock when the sergeants and everybody had left for the day. And he gave me a manuscript, probably 20 pages long. And he said, go home and memorize this. So I went home and every scar that I have from every bullet hole and knife wounds and all this stuff, everyone had a story created for it, like a paragraph on, on this is the head injury of these, all these scars here were when you fell out of a treehouse when you were a kid. And, and it was like an elaborative descriptive story of, of how it happened. So I, I went home and I memorized all these 20 pages. And the next week he sent me off to MEPS, which is the military entrance processing station. And, and you go there and they do like a full background check, fingerprinting, full medical physical. You take your shirt off, you strip down to your underwear. And they, the uh, medical examiner says, you know, what, what's this scar here? What is this from? And, and so what I did was I fed him those stories that my recruiter gave me. And I passed. And I signed a four-year contract. And two years into my contract, I, I got a, they call it jacket pulls. They pull just randomly. They do like thorough background checks on just random people to make sure everything's kosher. I got pulled on that, and they sent off releases to like all the hospitals that could I could ever went to in my life, and they got back comatose for six months for after being shot in the head. They threw it down in front of me and they said, "Explain this." And I was like, "Oh shit!" And they said, "Well, what we need you to do is testify against your recruiter in court, so we can court martial him and take his strip him of his powers and everything else." And I said, "Ain't no way in hell. This guy saved my life. I'd be dead today or in prison if this guy didn't didn't save me." And they said, well, if you don't, then we're going to prosecute you for fraudulent enlistment. You're going to spend about 10 years in prison. I was like, shit. <laughs> Finally chose, you know, I can't put this guy in prison because he saved my life. So they discharged me with a medical discharge. Not dishonorable, but medical. Couldn't touch him without my word. So he, he stayed in, as far as I know. Yeah, that's, that's the code of the streets. And I was taught that from 13 on. <laughs> you don't snitch. You know, it's just, it just it became a part of who I was. And yeah, I just, I, 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 it wasn't in me to do that to him. That's just that you don't do that to people, not people that do you a favor, you know what I mean? But when I do it, shoulders kick some facts. Us blacks don't know how to act. Sometimes I believe the hype man. We mess it up ourselves and blame the white man. But don't point the finger, you jigaboo. Take a look at yourself, you dumb nigga, you. Pretty soul hip hop won't be so nice. No ice cube, just vanilla man. ice. And you're sitting screaming cuss, but it's no one to blame. But us. Yeah, but why is it that one motherfucker could ruin it for 22,000 motherfuckers when they want to come see a good jam? You know what I'm saying? Hey, you tell them something. I came home and got a really negative attitude, started listening to us again. I went into the Navy to serve my country, and they wouldn't let me do that. So I guess I'm destined for the street life. And went and got a pistol, went and got some drugs, and started that lifestyle again for a while. And let's see, on 5396. I went to his house, it was, he was born 42780. So he was 16 and six days old. And I went over to his house and I was sitting with his family at the table. And he went to the kitchen to get something to drink and he came back in the room and he, he took the gun out of my pants. All I heard was a loud, <laughs> heard the cock. And I jumped and I looked up at him and he had it to his head like this. He was left-handed, he had it right behind his ear. He said, I'm, I'm finna go. And I was like, you know, what the, what the hell are you talking about? Like, you know, put the gun down. I said, there ain't no safety on a Glock. And he said, he said, no, I'm gonna go. He said, I'm sick of this lifestyle. And I'm like, look, I know I'm, 
home from the Navy now, like I'm removed from the streets, but I can make some phone calls. Like don't even, you know, consider this option. And I, I could see like through his, through his soul, like in his eyes, he was just, he had this blank look and I knew like he was already dead. He'd already made that decision. And I, and I knew if I, if I went like this, that he'd pull that trigger before I could get to it. So I, I, I did what, what I thought might work. I said, I said, if I know that you'd never do anything to hurt me, but if, if you want to die today, then I'm going to go with you. And I, I leaned over and I, I put my head next to his ear to ear because I knew he wouldn't pull the trigger because he knew the bullet would come out and kill me too. Then I heard a, a really loud bang, like like the loudest thing I ever heard in my life. My ears were ringing, my head was ringing. Because he had it behind his left ear like this, when we were cheek to cheek, the bullet came out at an angle like this and went right past my forehead into the wall. And I sat back and, and I, I, thought he, I thought he just like shot the floor or something, was goofing around. And I sat back and I realized that I had blood and brains all over me. And he put the gun down on the table and he, he looked me in the eyes and he said, I love you. And he, he fell back in his chair and started convulsing. And I, I got down on the floor and I, I held his head shut. He was, he was just shaking and I held his head shut to, to keep as much brains as I could inside. And his sister was running around really crazy and, and you know freaking out. And I told him, call the ambulance, call the cops. And his sister came from the kitchen with a towel and she picked up the gun and she was wiping, wiping it down like this. And I said, what the fuck are you doing? Call the cops. And, and she said, they're going to blame you because your prints are all over the gun. She took it and she, she went to put it back on the on the table and it slipped out of the towel and it was like slow motion. I mean, this gun was just like twirling like this and it hit the floor and it fired again and misfired. And when the police got there, there was a bullet hole in the wall where he killed himself and a bullet hole where the gun went off. And so they said it looked like there was a struggle. They arrested me for murder, put me on trial for murder and I lost the case and, and I was sentenced to death. It was like a two week trial. The last day of trial, the brother and sister came in and testified in court for me and said that they lied and they said that it wasn't my gun. They said Anthony pulled it out of his own his own pants and, and killed himself. And I was just I got kinda cocky in court. I was smiling, I was like glowing. I was like, Yes, this is it. They can't possibly convict me as eyewitnesses. And the judge stood up and, and she said she stood up off her bench and she, she said, you guys can have a seat. She said, that was very touching testimony, but it holds no weight in my courtroom because I know that if this brother and sister don't come here and lie for you today, that you'll make a phone call from prison and have them killed by noon tomorrow. They put me away and sat on death row for two years. And in 98, I finally woke up and said, I'm not supposed to be here. I didn't do this crime. So then after those two years, I called some friends, got some money together and hired an attorney. He reopened the case two years later. They proved in court that the entry wound had to be self-inflicted that, that the way the blood spattered on me there was no way i could bend in the position to get the bullet to come out of the gun and that it had to be a self-inflicted wound or somebody else had to do it so i beat the case and i got exonerated my father I, I tracked down my birth father when i was 19. Called him up, went to his house, you know, started to forge a relationship with him, kind of found out why I was abandoned and things like that. And he called me one night after I was out of the Navy. He called me at a bar drunk one night and he asked me to come pick him up. He couldn't get home. So I did it. Went and picked him up, didn't go in the bar, sat in the car. And he came out with a friend of his. He said, you know, he lives on the same block as me. Just give him a ride home too. Guy jumps in the back seat, pull out a lot. And the police pulled us over because they thought I was drunk leaving a bar and searched the car. And under the back seat, they found a bag of coke that this guy dropped in the car. And the way the law says is if it's my car, it's my shit. And I did six years in prison for it. Music was big in prison, too. I mean, hip-hop, obviously, in prison, it's, it's generally African-American, which is where hip-hop's generally at. It was the same thing. It kind of carried us through. It, it, it took our mind off of where we were at. It, it, it gave us peace. It gave us, like, an escape from where we were. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Racism, I think, develops when people see a certain group of people. Not, not necessarily all black people, but a certain group of black people or Mexican people, whatever it is. And they generalize it onto the rest of them. In prison, I was with 
all the bad ones. <laughs> so, so then that kind of like played out my mind. I was like, you know, wow, maybe Ice Cube was right. <laughs> Because it was it was all people that were like I can't wait to get out and start selling drugs again. People that weren't trying to get off of that that lifestyle. People mm-hmm. were just like going right back to it. I, I had changed all my views about you know people how people are and stuff, and then I got there right thrown right in the middle of the worst of the worst. You know, that's kind of back to the to the hip hop song. Keep your head up. That's always in my mind. Like like when when bad things come at me in life, no matter how bad it gets, you can still keep your head up. Yeah, that that song right there. I mean, that's that's what drives me in life even today. That, that's what's giving me the, the outlook on life that I have. Like I never give up. I don't care what opposition's put in my face. I I make it out of it. I mean, even though Pac talked about a lot of negativity, everything he said made sense. Like it was it was preaching about what's really going on in the world. You know, like like even that song talking about we got money for wars but can't feed the poor. How true does that ring? You know, we got people dying in this country, starving and, and living under bridges, but yet we keep funneling trillions into these wars. He said in that song, he listened to Marvin Gaye, and he said, suddenly the ghetto didn't seem so rough. It's like, that's what it did for me. Like. It made everything around me not seem so bad. I think that, that, that my family life is, is what really helps me. Because a lot of people, like I said earlier, they stereotype, they generalize. Everybody from the projects is bad. If you're there, you know, they're bad people. Anybody coming out of there is involved with bad stuff. My family did not drink a drop of alcohol in the entire time that I knew them. They just, they, and they taught me, stay away from the streets. Mom worked every day, busted her ass. So they, they really instilled some of those good values into me. And it taught me that, that not everybody coming from there is bad. Not everybody from a certain race is bad. And, and when I started selling drugs and got affiliated with gangs, I, I hid that from my family because I didn't want to disappoint them. I would buy groceries because there were, there were nights that we, we cried ourselves to sleep at night because we were hungry. Like we had no food. There was nothing in the house at all and no resources to go out and get food. You know, when the, when the food stamps ran out, it ran out, that was it. <laughs> there was no free handouts anywhere. If neighbors didn't have food to share because they were poor too, you just didn't eat. And you like couldn't wait to go to school and, and get lunch the next day, but you had to wait through the first three periods. And it was just, it was rough. I'd go and I'd buy groceries, to, uh, groceries at Jewel on 31st and uh, Halstead, and I'd bring them back to the house and I'd leave them on the doorstep and I'd go in the house. And, and when my mom would leave out to go somewhere, she'd find these groceries on the doorstep and she'd say, oh my God, like somebody must really care about us. And so I did that as a way to not lose respect from her, not get in trouble, and, and still be able to take care of the family. And even though we had a good upbringing, we were in negativity, so we didn't, we didn't have another choice. You know, it was like, get your ass beat every day on the way to school or join a gang and then people won't mess with you. It's like, that was your two choices. And, and getting your ass beat got old after the second day. <laughs> so so they unfortunately never got off the path like I did. And like I got a brother, Tyrone is in, in uh, prison right now for 68 years. He's got 10 kids by eight women, I think, all of whom wish to have no father now. 
So I got him, then I got another brother that's in and out of jail all the time. I got a sister that's in college doing pretty good now. Like I said, it was where we came from, it was gonna happen either way. I'm like, I'm sure some people didn't get involved with gangs and things like that and, or drugs, but the majority did. I was an expert. Like I, I felt like I was made to sell drugs. Like I taught myself. I went and I bought bulk and I, I learned how to cut it. I learned how to mix it. I learned how to cook it. I just figured it out. And because I was so good at that stuff, I think that it was easier for him to fall victim of that. And then we started working together because you could trust your brother more than you could trust a friend on the street. I kind of guided him in that direction, I think. So I feel a little responsibility. And like my sister, like I, I know that she's only in college because I have a master's degree. Nobody in our entire generation or, or before us ever went to college. I was the first one in the family to go to college. And, and so I know that without me doing that, like explaining it to her and showing her how it doesn't have to be a scary thing and you will be able to pay off your loans. She did it. You know what I mean? So I, I feel responsible for that, for having that positive influence in her life. After Anthony died, when I got out of prison, I was, I just, I, I was driven by that wanting to figure out, like, like seriously, what was so bad? Like he had it no worse than I did. He had, he had never been shot. <laughs> I haven't shot eight times. I almost died eight times, and I didn't ever kill myself or thought about killing myself. So what, what was making, what was working in his mind? Like what was wrong with his mind? And. So I decided to um, try to pursue that. And in, in my pursuit for that, when I was getting discharged from prison, I was you have to go through a community transition, it's called, where if you've done like a substantial amount of time in prison, they make you go through like this little counseling session to make sure you're not going to go out and kill somebody because you're mad or whatever. It's kind of like rate who you are, kind of like a psycho psychological eval. And the girl's name was Judy Paulson. And she said, she said she had my whole case in front of her and my whole life story pretty much. And she's flipping through and her eyes were just like this and she was reading it. And she said, holy shit. She's like, you've been shot eight times? And I said, unfortunately. And she said, I have a friend that owns a counseling center, Hammond, Indiana. And she's willing to pay you. She would be willing to pay you to tell your life story to kids. And I was like, what? I'm a, I'm a gangbanger. I'm a, a drug dealer. Like, what do you mean pay me for talking about my life? Like, I, I didn't know what counseling was at that point in my life. Like, I didn't even know it existed. Because, like, our schools didn't have counselors and things like that. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And... I went down to the place, and for an hour I talked to troubled youth, and it was kids that like I caught smoking on school grounds, like maybe a joint in their pocket, some minimal things. And if they went to a counseling session, then they they got all the charges dropped. And so I went there, and she just she's like put me in front of the room. She's like, all right, talk. And I was just like, I just winged it. You know, I just said, okay, well, my name's Justin. You know, I, I I've been shot eight times, and, and like all the kids were like like in awe and stuff like that. And I remember getting done, and a couple of kids came up, they wanted my autograph. And I was just like, I'm not a movie star. Like, don't don't strive to be like me. Strive to not be like me. I guess I guess part of it is I know how bad it can get. So I, I always I don't want anybody to have to go through what I've gone through. It was really bad and, and hard. And if I didn't have things driving me, like like that song, for example. If I didn't keep my head up through them bullet holes, I would have gave up and died. And so I, I don't ever want people to go through that. That's my, my drive to give to others and help others is, is I don't want people to have to go down that route when it's not necessary. I, you know, the whole time I, I was born with a good heart, like the whole time I was selling drugs, I felt guilty about it. I knew it wasn't the right thing to do, but I justified it in, in my mind. I made it make sense by saying, if I shut down shop today, somebody else is going to set up shop tomorrow. 
So they're still gonna get, they're still gonna find drugs and get drugs. Why not me make a couple bucks off of it while it's going on? And then later, it wasn't until until later in life that I realized that even though I was just selling twenties on the corner, somebody in Mexico might have been getting killed today to get me those drugs here. And just the entire community, like you know, one person that does drugs is he shared drugs with those around him, and and so it's just gonna continue to spread and infiltrate the community and 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 give us more reasons to do drugs. If if everybody's always down and and depressed, it's like that's why people do drugs. They turn to that to bring them back up and so I felt the responsibility for that and I said you know I just can't contribute to this anymore I'm a, a clinical manager at West Suburban Pads which is a homeless organization and so we operate shelters I coordinate all medical um, substance abuse and psychiatric services for the homeless population free of charge. So that's the one job. And then my other job is I'm a crisis therapist for a community mental health center. And I wear a pager for two, two police departments and four hospitals. And so from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m., four days a week, they can call me out, do a psychiatric evaluation, and then hospitalize if necessary. I still do seminars. I get hired by the city of Chicago schools, and I go out to different high schools, and I do a three-hour seminar on stage about the street life and, 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 and I take off my shirt and I show them the bullet holes and I show them that, you know, this is what you're going to get and you're probably not going to live through eight bullet holes. And, and just trying to, to show them by example that, that you don't want to go down this path and, and there's a way that you don't have to and this is how. I guess just going back to, to keep your head up, how I really feel like that gave me the morals that I have today. I think that I, that I want the people out there that, that are critics of, of rap or hip hop, I want them to hear that, that, that some good came out of it, that it's not all bad. Because again, I think that they generalize just like racists do. They generalize that all of it's bad. I'm walking proof that, that this song really guided me and helped me make good decisions in life. And, and, and taught me how to treat women. My mom and dad never taught me not to abuse women. I mean, my dad abused my mom, but this song did. This song, you know, even, even though I didn't like, that's not why I listened to it, because it was talking about good things. The beat caught me, the words caught me, and, and, and it taught me the way that you're supposed to be in life. So I think it matters, and I think it's a way to identify, it's, it's a way to bring people together. People come together when, when you play hip hop. People want to move and dance, and, and, and I feel like when hip hop's being played, it's not, even if the, the lyrics are bad, it's not about fighting and violence. It's about getting along and having a good time, losing yourself in the music. So I think it's important for those reasons.